Hello, this is Tanya Smart with the Smart Chronicles. Today we're joined by Ebony Payne English. Ebony Payne English is an author, performance artist, and educator from Jacksonville, Florida. She's also the first woman to establish her own chapter of the international poetry organization, Black on Black Rhyme. She is the curator of the Museum, Museum of Contemporary Art in Jacksonville for the first hip hop exhibit. She's also, she's also an author and managing director of the Performance Academy here in Jacksonville, Florida, which is a nonprofit organization. And I chose this time to speak with Ebony, who had also been on the panel discussion for the podcast, Learning Business of Poetry. I told her I wanted to talk about um, not just her art, I want to talk about what she's doing in a nonprofit arena, which she's been in for quite some time. But I also want to talk about the youth and um, the teens that she's working with. Some of them are teens who are, are involved, who are actually in the uh, foster care system. I want to have a discussion about that. But I also want to talk about the fact that she is a, a business, an entity within herself. So welcome, Miss Ebony Payne English. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your platform with me, Tanya Smart. It's an honor and a pleasure. You are welcome. You are welcome. So let's let's talk a little bit about your, your history. So there are some things that people may not really know about. Uh, and, and not really... Mommy. Uh, competition here. This is, why, why this is that my daughter, Mahogany Rose. <laughs> Mahogany Rose, will you go drink some of your coconut milk on the table, please? Thank you. She's thirsty. Hey, hey, hey. Whatever the queen wants, the queen gets. So I wanted to um, see if you could provide just some background information on, on Black on Black Rhyme. I know who, it, who they are. Um, I've lived in Florida for a while. So I was in the poetry scene. But for those who are unfamiliar, just give them a little bit of, of history of Black on Black Rhyme, how you started with them and what you've done to actually expand the brand throughout the country. So uh, Black on Black Rhyme was established 21 years ago um, in September of 22 by a man named Keith Rogers. And it, it was, it started off in his living room on Orange Avenue near FAMU campus. And it was just a, a free open mic night. They called it Poetic Drive-Bys. And literally his living room was only big enough for one car full of people to fit in at a time. And so the poets would perform and then the cars would take turns of people coming in to see this show. And then when one car full of people left, another car full of people came in. And that was the poetry night that Tallahassee had at that time. And it was called Black on Black Rhyme, which was a play on uh, the term Black on Black Rhyme. Mm -hmm. And I want my nail. And so- um, I don't want my nail. When I came I in, by the time I came in, because I've been with Black on Black Rhyme for 17 years. In March, it made 17 years. Um, and so, they, yeah, when I came in, they had, at that point, uh, been placed in Amsterdam, or soon after I came in, they had been placed in Amsterdam, and um, had expanded across the country. I think uh, they were in New York at that point. They were already in Tampa. They were in Miami. They were in Fort Lauderdale. Um, 
a, a few other places around the country. And then uh, during my time with them from, from then until now, for the last 17 years, uh, they've expanded to, they became the first, good job, Mahaki Rose. I'm very proud of you for drinking it. You're gonna grow up big and strong, okay? So proud of you. Okay. Hey, mommy's working right now. Can I can I have a moment to work with you go play and color so I can finish? But I don't have my sex. I don't have my crowns. Yes, your crayons are right there. Let me show. Um so with their expansion, uh I just noticed that there was a, a lack of feminine leadership in the chapters that were being established on a national or international level. Um, and what I, I, what I believe in is uh, balance. And um, I know that I'm a product, all of my successes are products of strong feminine leadership. Whether it ha happened in the classroom environment or on stage or in the recording studio or in the, the theater, <laughs> you know, um, or in in literature, in literature, uh, my my success is a product of feminine, strong feminine leadership, and the majority of that feminine leadership has been black women, mm -hmm. and so it was important to me that an organization with the bandwidth of a black or black rhyme um, had a chapter that was established by a black woman, and if not anyone else why not me uh, so uh, that's what I did and I came home to Jacksonville and I started my own chapter Black on Black Rhyme and it was also the first nonprofit chapter in the work so it was a Black on Black Rhyme Jacks Foundation and it was designed to be a pot of money that awards scholarships to artists to complete projects they have a table because one thing that I that I, I can attribute to Keith Rogers that can never be taken away is that he has a school of a hustle. How to market yourself, brand yourself, and make a profit off of your art. And he taught me how to how to turn my poems into revenue, how to pay my rent off your uh, performing and product, merchandising. And so uh, it's a pot of money to award to an artist selected by the panel on an annual basis um, to put out a project, to use the money to put out a project to brand themselves and market themselves. Um, I'm really proud that I had a hand in that and I was able to contribute what I could to the culture. So that's my Black on Black Rhyme story. So how, how old were you or what year uh, were you in, when you were in college when you were doing Black Black and black, right? I was like eight eight years. Wow. Yeah, so you started off at the beginning. Years old. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, you started when you were 18. Did you travel yeah. outside of Florida? Yep, I traveled all over the country. Um, no, no, no. When you were when you were in college. Not not after. Yeah, not yeah after. I did my first tour. My first tour was when I was in college. I opened up for Jamie Foxx at the New Orleans House of Blues during Essence Festival. Mm -hmm. And I was still I was still at FAMU during that time. So uh, that was during my first tour. My first tour ever. I was 20. I was 20 years old. 
So what did you do after you left college? So we're gonna do a time. I moved to Atlanta. <laughs> after college, I moved to Atlanta, and I began. Uh, well, my internship in college uh, was with the Pool Runners DJs, and the founder of the Pool Runners DJs is Bigger Breaker, who later became the vice president of CTE and um, the vice president of the Hitman DJs. And those are both, both of those companies are based in Atlanta. And so I got a job he, after my internship, he offered me a job over at CTE, uh, working as his publicity assistant. And my major was public relations. So uh, right after college, I took a job in Atlanta, moved to Atlanta and started working in the hip hop industry. How long did you do that? Uh, for quite some time, eight years. Wow. So yeah. what did you get out of that? So that, the, the eight years, what kind of experience, just not just public relations, but let's say on the artist development side, as well as the business side, what did you get out of those eight yeah, years? Yeah, well, my goal was to one day become an A&R. Mm -hmm. But so much changed during that time. In that eight year time span, I mean, goodness, music changed. Uh, live streaming happened. Mm. Streaming happened. Um, people stopped buying CDs. <laughs> uh, albums no longer became a thing. Uh, it all became about the single and the digitization of music. Uh, your Instagram followers, Facebook happened, MySpace happened, Twitter happened. You know what I'm saying? All of that stuff happened. And it was just about who follows you? How popular are you online? What is your social media following? And all of that changed. So eventually, um, and during that time, I became a very successful poet. Mm -hmm. And my brand developed to the point where it just, it made more sense for me to lean into the poetry side of things. Um, my brother, my little brother ended up having an altercation in which he was beaten by police officers and arrested and uh, I moved back to Jacksonville I moved home to Jacksonville to uh, not only be here to support him and be here with him but to also uh, realign myself and figure out what exactly is I really wanted and what I really wanted to do and that was it was during that time that I started Black and Black Rock Dance. okay all right, so let's let's talk about the the nonprofit world. So you started with Black and Black Rhyme, open in that, but I know that you did some additional work, the Performance Academy, and I also know that you've worked with the teens with JYPS, because I've worked with you side by side. <laughs> so that was a godsend, because I, I had been working with teens, and I knew that my strength, my strength was in getting the partnerships. And... I needed somebody else to help. I had a couple of local poets who were helping out. And I remember I was basically practically begging Taryn Love Reigns to, to come on board. Please, I need some help. And she said, I can't commit to that. But what I can do is I can connect you with Ebony because she's back in town. I said, is she? And she said, yeah, I'll set up breakfast. And she did it. She, We had breakfast that day and she set it up. And I was like, woohoo, I'm free. She can work with the kids and I can go out and try and beg for this money <laughs> to get these kids to brave new voices. Yeah, so 2010 um, was when I came 
was when I really just like came full circle and um, I I attended my very first Breaking Voices Festival uh, as a coach and doing that really just made me have a passion for you poetry and wanting to further um, develop my, my knack for creating platforms of self-discovery and, and free expression for young people. And so because I was once a young pe- person needing that mm-hmm. desperately, like very desperately needing that. And because I didn't have it, um, like a lot of the trouble that I got into, I think I could have avoided if I just had a, a safe and supportive outlet for my emotions and uh, just some place to vent and just express the things that I was seeing and, 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 and hearing and uh, feeling. And so I wanted to do that for other people. And uh, with that opportunity, I I came in contact with Love Ranks, who then was like, hey, Tanya Smart is looking for someone to partner with and because I had gotten kids from your slam all the other years when I was mentoring um, the kids were coming out of the JYP the winner of the JYPS slam would all automatically win a slot on the BMB team it just seemed like a natural uh, pairing and so at the breakfast meeting it, we, we found out it was a natural pairing and then uh, we just we went in together from the north so yeah. So the first year that um, Matthew Cuban Hernandez brought kids to the Brave New Voices was when I the first year I had a slam. So it was at the Kennedy Center wow. in Springfield, and I look up in the bleachers and I see him just looking and smiling, and you see the wheels turning. Like, how you doing? He's like, I'm good now. And I, and after the slam, because he participated, but after the slam, he's like, Hey. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember if it was in San Francisco, but he was selling it. He's like, you want to go here? Da, da, da. And of course, it's not it's not a hard sell because um, what what people, some people who aren't familiar with Brave New Voices, voices is, if they're not familiar with Brave New Voices, um, we'll just give them a little bit of, of history. What Brave New Voices is an international festival that's held every year in a different city and is hosted by a nonprofit called You Speaks. And it brings together kids who would not normally leave their neighborhood. And we absolutely give them an opportunity. 500 kids from all over the yeah. world. 500 youth from all over the world. We don't ask yeah. a, for a dime. We ask that yeah. they commit. Um, you put together a schedule. You have your one-on-ones. You mentor them and coach them through the process. And that's, that's yeah. the commitment that we ask. And there aren't too yeah. many situations where you're going to get that. But that leads to them knowing how to actually put in the work. Right. That's sweat equity. And then they get there and everything is easy because you've worked so hard. They prepared, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like yeah. boot camp. You know, you hear the yeah. kids say, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to come here and see your face, your face, anybody's all face anymore. And then they get yeah. to brand new voices and they're like, oh my gosh, this is great. And then they see all the kids that they've watched online perform and all the coaches yeah and then they do the same thing and they do a great job no matter what the outcome is they get up there and and they're just flawless because they do the best yeah. of their ability that's what you ask 
it's been amazing. It's been, it's truly been amazing. So let's talk about what you're doing at the Performance Academy. So I know you have a couple of programs um, there at the Performance Academy. Yes. And I, I've been to the website lately, and man, that website is dope. Um, you've got yeah. programming. You've got quite a few programs. You got Squad Goals, of course, Cross Poem, which is a product of my environment, which is a program that leads to teens going to Raven Voices. Yeah. Just like me, and of course, Truth and Proof, I've been to that open mic, which I love. But I wanted to talk about yeah. squad goals. And what, what's that? That's the newest one. Yeah, it's very squad different. Is our after school program. Uh, this was its first school year in existence. It's funded by Kids Hope Alliance. And it is a arts based after school program for teens in the greater Jacksonville area who are interested in studying uh, one of the fine arts uh, uh, focused on uh, like presentation, exhibition, and, and development. So it's really just to like hone in on their skills and allow them to blossom. Um, so they can take two different arts areas, but we offer seven. And so, <sighs> Excuse me. I'm sorry. My color. But yeah, we offer seven arts areas. And um, the seven arts areas that we offer are all like rooted in uh, just the, the center itself is a 10,000 square foot facility. And so it's, it's uh, we offer them like for the rooms that we have. So we have uh, a computer lab, so you can do graphic design there. Uh, we have a black box theater, a 2000 square foot black box theater. So you can take theater there. Uh, we have a studio, so you can take music production and recording arts there. We have um, an art studio, so you can take uh, drawing, painting, and crafting there. Um, we have three dance studios, so you can take ballet, modern, and hip-hop there. So it's, uh, it's a facility, it's a state-of-the-art facility that is really just designed to produce uh, high-functioning artists. Uh, who happen to be teens, but it's also entrepreneurship based. So it's uh, to teach them how to, the same skills that I learned, you know, how to merchandise, develop a brand, and then um, make a living off of the work that they produce. Because what we're trying to eradicate is the, the starving artist uh, image that has been put into so many people's minds uh, that are, I think is is undeserved to say that best because culture does not move without the art. Society does not progress without art. Education does not exist without an artist. Even if it's just a matter of the literary artist, none of that exists without it. So it's, it's um, that's my goal. Uh, the mission of the Performance Academy is to share the passion of the arts with the entire community especially those who would not be otherwise exposed to its influence. And um, our specialty niche is the foster teen population of Jacksonville, Florida. And so that's really um, our, our, our focal point 
is um, for foster teens to find something that uh, makes them feel like they can accomplish anything, even if their backgrounds are not the same as um, other other teens. Uh, they have the opportunity to say so, to, to say what they want out of life and then go after it. And then they have the means with which to get it done. Um, so that's TPA. So how, how have these, these teens in foster care, how have they been affected by what's going on with, with COVID? Uh, we know how the teens who are going to, you know, a home or, or just adults just trying to get through their job and trying to make that transition from going into an office and then being home and having to homeschool. We're not seeing as much information concerning the foster care, the foster care. Uh, what, what, yeah. What, well, because oh, I mean, society is like they're they're an afterthought. Yeah. In some cases, you know, because um, it's it's a lot of to say. Oh, the kids can just go to school online, but um, you have no idea what some of these foster kids, uh, whether or not they have a computer, whether or not they have access to uh, wireless internet, uh, whether or not they have a case manager, because the workload, the case managers. First of all, over, overworked and underpaid. Mm -hmm. um, the amount of work required of them makes turnover rate that, that one of the highest of any profession I've seen. Hands down. Yeah. And it's a high stress, high trauma environment because you're working with people who have been essentially traumatized uh, by the people who are supposed to protect them. So it's, it's hard uh, to keep good people in those seats. Um, and so, a lot of foster kids who are in a group home setting, if you can imagine, that's not a situation where you have a foster mom and a foster dad. You live in a group home, and that's because there are not enough foster parents in Jacksonville for the demand. We don't have enough uh, uh, qualified applicants to meet the demand. And so a lot of our kids end up in group home settings. So with group homes, you don't have a foster mom and a foster dad. It's not a family setting, it's a facility. And then you have staff who are actually there, that's their job. So they clock in, they clock out for work. Um, so with something like COVID and um, the stay at home or shelter in place worker, what you have to understand is some of these employees at the group homes, you know, have families that they have chosen to stay at home with, with them. So what you have is understaffed um, facilities. Uh, which, you know, the best way to manage that is to keep the kids inside and in sight. So uh, they've had limited experiences and outlets during this time. And nothing says that you don't have family like something <clears throat> as serious as a global crisis. Uh, and, and that could make you feel so alone. Mm -hmm. And you're on your own out here in this world. And so what was important to us as soon as uh, they did the, the lockdown, what was important to us is that a lot of the, our foster parents in Jacksonville are essential workers. So the first thing TPA did was get with FSS and figure out how we could help and how our facility, because we have so much space to safely socially distance, could assist with these uh, teenagers who cannot be left at home um, while their parents work. Uh, and just to make sure that they have a safe place to be until the state, you know, figured out other and more appropriate ways to place them during lockdown. 
And so that's not lockdown. And it's crazy that I'm using that terminology, especially because uh, those of of us who have family members impacted by mass incarceration understand completely that um, the prisoners that are going through this right now, it's a nightmare, it's bananas. So although it's similar, it may feel like uh, a lot of our freedoms have been suspended or taken away, it's not the same thing as being in a cage right now, and with your loved ones on the outside and you just be helpless to protect or uh, communicate. But um, with the stay-at-home order, it was just something that we wanted to make sure is that they had a safe place to be, that they had safe uh, measures to manage their anxieties and um, emotional content, whatever it may be, and that uh, they didn't feel abandoned or forgotten or left out there in any way. And I'm very proud that from March until now, we have had consistent contact with the foster teams that we serve. And there's never been a moment where we didn't know where they were, what they were doing, or whether or not they were okay. And not only that, there's never been a moment that they didn't know that there was somebody that was concerned and checking for them about where they're at, what they're doing, and whether or not they're okay. And that is really uh, the energy that that drives me to continue to do the work that I'm doing there. So. Nice, nice. Um, are they are they testing the the kids? I asked that because I was reading um, some articles last week about kids who are in juvenile care, and we've seen the spike. It's no shock because it's Florida. But that, like, there are certain, like, people who are in confined spaces, such as detention center, jails, and where are we being, are we really caring, taking measures to try and prevent this and and really treating, making sure we treat everyone like a human being, like we, how we would want people to treat our family members. Are we giving them masks? Are we testing to make sure? Um, Do we know if that's taking place? Well, I know, unfortunately, a lot of the kids in Jacksonville that are foster teens do uh, encounter uh, the juvenile detention center. And that's just uh, a, a sign that we can do better as a state. Because yeah. we can do better by these foster families. Um, and that's by doing better by foster children, foster babies, and the beginning when they come into care. Uh, because the, the reason why it's so easy for them to transition into that system is because they've been standing before the judge from the time that they got into care. They've been standing before a judge but from the time that they, they got into care. And they regularly stand before a judge, right? So you, everything starts with an idea. You plant that idea and so it's head in the process. But uh, there is a difference. So, uh, the foster teens who are placed and licensed for kinship care. That is uh, what's that? And I know that as, as as necessary, they have been tested and tested negative. Um, the juvenile detention center, the regional detention center here in Jacksonville, uh, a lot of people know it as DDC, has done an impeccable job of uh, making sure that the kids are spaced and safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as I know, we've had no incident in the juvenile detention center in, in DDC here. 
So that's really great. That's been great. And so a lot of those kids are my kids too, because we, we not only service the foster teens, but we also service kids, service kids attending Title One schools because poverty itself is a trauma. And then uh, we we service the juvenile detention center. And last year we were also the we had the honor of being the very first after school program at Job Corp. So yeah. nice. So you're the managing director uh, at the Performance Academy. I said that right, right? Yeah. Okay, because I always get it wrong. <laughs> and you always correct yeah. me. You, you're, you, you, yeah, don't, but you don't say you got soon, it wrong. Very soon, you do it. Soon very soon. I know. I will be I know. the executive director at TPK. Um, so coming in the fall. So I'm transitioning. I'm in the process of transitioning into my new role there, and I'm very excited. So just in case people are unaware, um, because your name is Ebony, um, but they may still be unaware that you're African-American. Let's talk about the fact that you'll be an executive director at a nonprofit organization in, in the city of Jacksonville. How many, I, the only other, the only other executive that I know, I know founder directors, um, is it just the, the, um, the, the executive director for the cultural council. Do you know of any other? Yeah, Joy Young at the Cultural Council. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's Gwen Owens at Don't Miss a Beat, but she she is a founding director. Which is not to um, take away um, at all. I just yeah, not at all, not at all. And she's amazing. And Don't mm-hmm. Miss a Beat has done amazing things. I'm very proud of the work they've done. Um, no, I I can't say besides Joy that I know of. Yeah, and so I just want to go back to say it's not to take not away from anyone. Yeah, so it's not to take away from the founding directors at all, because all that no, shows no. is that people and uh, women, black women, have had to create that space, and we're seeing that a lot. We see create that lane. You have to create we your own lane, lane. and it's it, it, and it's so it's a lot of work. You're always going to work hard, but it's a lot of work, and so that's why I would try to di- differentiate because what she's doing and what she's done is great, but she had to create that lane and. You know that makes you having that experience it makes you dangerous but i, I also want to see someone being plopped from the outside and someone bringing them in and having them work within the organization and then that person also being the executive director because we need to see some more african-american women who are executive directors and nonprofit organizations yeah i um i would be remiss to not mention Catherine McAvoy, who's the founding director of the Performance Academy. And from the moment that we met, from the from the moment that we let me just a moment. From the moment From the moment that we met, uh, she's really just taken an interest in my vision mm-hmm. and my intended trajectory for the performance again. Yeah. And so I started off as a volunteer. I volunteered at TPA for a year. And then from there, I became the program director. And then from there, I became the managing director. Um, and 
Uh, she's never once wavered in her belief that I myself could quite possibly change the world. And yeah. she says it often. And um, not just says it, but invests in the things that I believe will um, push that initiative forward. Uh, and so it's, it's an honor, right, to be received at all at work, but to be received and backed by executive leadership is a freedom that I do think that more black women could stand to have in the in the corporate environment only because um, you know they are the trendsetters commonly and, and they are the 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 ideas the big idea in the room you know and it's like uh, having to shrink yourself on a daily basis just to just to not step on any toes and make anyone feel uncomfortable and um, to be able to, to create programming for the teams of, of my my particular um, chosen chosen influence um, without inhibitions or without the pushback has has truly been uh, one of the best experiences of my life uh, to, to have that ability to be able to do that and, and do it on this level has, has really changed my life and I think even if I don't uh, quote unquote change the world I know that Jackson Lowe is better because I was here and that was my intended goal anyway which is you know I'm just trying to matter to the place that matters to me which is hope you know? yeah and, and that part when you were just saying that's for the listeners it's not for me because I was there I was there during that <laughs> whole period of time when you were volunteering yeah. and I, I saw and heard about how much yeah. trust she had in you. And that was because yeah. you earned it. It wasn't because she, you know, one day, you know, sought you out and said, oh, I just want to give you an opportunity just because I'm the right <laughs> person. No, she heard about your reputation, what you could do. You had already done the work, put the, you put the equity into it, you put the sweat equity into it. And so she heard about what you had done and wanted to bring you in and you came in as a volunteer. And I think what some people don't understand is, uh, is, your version of volunteer is different than other people's version of volunteer because when we work together, you you know it's not as though we could actually give you a a um, a salary or anything along those lines. We do what we could, but you would come in, you'd work with the teens, and you didn't you didn't half step. You didn't say, well, I'm not being paid, so I'm not going to give it 110 percent. You gave those kids everything, and you gave that program everything. You created curriculum that you could that you could bring anywhere in any city you know, throughout the United States. But the, the way you volunteer is different than the way someone else volunteers because you treat it like it's a full-time yeah. job. And this is something that I remember having a conversation with you about and a couple other people. Yes, like, I cannot believe, like she's on time. Yeah. And if she can't be yeah. there, she's calling you. And Cause I remember yeah. I used to, uh, I used to be able to pay people and at the beginning, and, and I, I have your check ready and you're not showing up on time. Meanwhile, Ebony's knocking the check, you know, if I can, I will, but you're on time, you're committed. Oh my God. Yeah. So you're volunteering. Well, for me, for it's me, different. it's important. The work is what's important. Yeah. Um, being able to get paid to do the work that is important to you is a gift. Because, I mean, think of how many people you know hate their jobs, yeah. like Dre getting up and going to work, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then I get to love my job and love what I do when I go to work um, and then be compensated for that. 
a living wage. So I, I'm already, you know, so blessed. Like I'm already so, so, so blessed. And so um, I'm, I'm appreciative, appreciative, like to say the very least, of the opportunity. And so even if I'm volunteering, it's because I, I'm happy to do the work. Not saying that you shouldn't be compensated, because I'm, I'm a strong advocate for paying artists. But what I'm saying is, like, in order to gain the experiential knowledge of what it is like to run a nonprofit, I was willing to volunteer so that I could figure it out. So that when I got the opportunity to do it for myself, um, I, w- I wouldn't be doing, you know, going in blind. Mm-hmm. Was this so, the first nonprofit that you volunteered at? Yes. On a, on a, at least for a year on a full-time basis? Yeah. So what did you get out of it uh, that first year when you when you weren't being compensated, you were volunteering, you were bringing your experience to the table, working with a business person who's very successful, who has this nonprofit, but she's looking to bring it to the next level. And you you built this this partnership. What did you get out of that first year? Um, two major things. One of them has everything to do with business and one has everything to do with working with, with you, um, a particular kind of um, one, the business aspect is that um, sometimes writing the check is the most convenient thing to do, which is why a lot of people who found the nonprofits that they work at would rather just write a check because asking for money is very inconvenient and it's hard. Like people try to make it seem like, oh, you begging? I know. People try to make it seem like, asking for money or begging begging for money it's like, money. Um, easy in the nonprofit sector it's not it's, it's a, it's a full time job to yeah. get donations to bring money in so if you have the money to fund the initiative the most convenient thing to do is to just you know write your organization Um, the most convenient thing to do is just to pay for it. And, and that, that shifted my perspective because uh, it, it made me uh, want to learn and gain the information needed to successfully fundraise and to do it well enough to where um, I don't have to uh, go bankrupt pushing uh, an initiative that I believe in that's just close to my heart because I, I don't have the the wherewithal to, to, to ask people for money. So that that was a big lesson that I had learned because I'm very prideful and it's hard for me to ask for money. It's hard for me to ask even strangers, loved ones, whoever, for money. But in the nonprofit world, that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to ask. And you're not going to have to ask for what you feel is a comfortable number. You're going to have to ask for what you need. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Straight-faced and unapologetically. And that's my biggest issue. Like, with coming into nonprofit was, I didn't know how to ask people for money. I didn't want to. It made me uncomfortable. I didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing, working with teams, is like, um, it, it takes a lot of humility because 
the respectability politics is something that's been uh, ingrained in our brain. To grow up black and live in the South is to have everyone tell you nobody's gonna respect you unless you act respectfully, unless you act respectful. You know, but that's assuming a lot about a person and where they come from and who they come. From. And so, with dealing with the type of teams that I deal with, uh, that's a that's a surefire way to lose them before you ever get a chance to intrigue them or to engage them. Is is to assume that uh, you are deserving of their respect. Or that that's something that you, you're entitled to. The truth of the matter is, it's not. Because if they are mistrustful of adults, they have every reason to be. And it's none of your business how they got there. If you're coming into this realm, if you're coming to this world and your intention is to help, you should be willing to help no matter no matter whether if they respect you or not. If that's really where your heart is and your intention is, that's the lesson I have to learn. I have to eat my humble pie. And relax. <laughs> and realize, you know, I, I'm here to serve. I'm not I, that's it. I'm here to serve. And whatever that needs to look like on an individual level, every kid is different. So on individual individual basis, that's what that's what we'll do. That's what we'll do. And so that's that's been what what my experience has been. So I I want to flip the switch and I want to talk about you as a business person because I, I was talking to you earlier and I was telling you. I just remind you of a conversation that we had a couple of years ago and we were talking about business. Okay. And we said, I'm not a businessman, I'm a businessman. And that's essentially what you have become. You are, uh, you know, a business because you, you uh, read two books, one of them, book of poetry that I have. I have one that's a book of poetry uh, and the graphic novel. They write, I'm gonna go see the play. Um, yeah. And, about to become executive director, I'm about to do a couple of other things on the business side. We know that. So if someone were to, I'm going to call you Ebony Inc. Ebony Inc., that's your, that's your title. So I just have a couple of questions. So if someone has been, you know, maybe they're in another country, coming from another planet, they ran into you and they asked you, what, what do you do? What would you say? How how could you you have you wear so many hats? How would you be able to summarize that? What is it that you do? I mean, uh, whenever people ask me, I, I just tell them I'm I'm, a, I'm I am a uh, literary and performance artist educator from Jacksonville, Florida. That's that's what I do. I'm a literary and performance artist educator. From next month. And there's nothing that I there's nothing that I do that doesn't fall under that umbrella. Mm -hmm. So I'm back to Ebony Inc. What are the products that you build and the services that you, you provide as Ebony Inc.? Well, I'm a I'm a poet. Um, I'm I'm an author. I'm a, a novelist. So like that falls under author, you know. I write, I write comics, graphic novels, uh, children's books, 
and poetry anthology, uh, fiction and uh, essays. I uh, am a playwright and actress. I uh, am an MC and uh, I, I put out, uh, I'm, I'm about to release in October my third hip hop project. Um, I'm a recording artist, so that that's another thing. Recording artist. Uh, I'm a I'm a fashion nista. We know. So I, I have a clothing line <laughs> launching, um, and you know, I, I'm I'm really just an idealist. If whatever I can imagine. I'd like to see if I can bring it into the tangible realm of reality. So like if I can imagine something and it, and it resonates with me enough to where I can meditate on it and actually write it down, um, then I want to, I want to see it come into fruition. You know, that's just, that's to me, like what my brand is centered around is just uh, my imagination. I have a, a very vivid, and unique imagination. And I bring things from the intangible realm of thought into the palpable realm of reality. And that could be anything. Because I have many interests. So, yeah. Would the 18-year-old Ebony, would she have been able to foresee this? The many titles and many accomplishments? Not, we all dream, I think. I don't think I know. You know, you, you have, when people ask you, what do you want to do? And you have all these dreams before you go to college and maybe even when you leave college. And it's pretty much, you know, everything is up in the air. But, you know, would you think, do you think that the 18 year old Ebony would be impressed by everything that you've accomplished so far? Because you're really, you're barely at midlife. About probably maybe five years before you can even say, yeah, midlife. Um, they, so some, of, some of the work that I'm doing on myself um, involves, you know, forgiving myself for not being the woman that my 18-year-old self dreamed of. Because my 18-year-old self thinks I'm a slacker. My 18-year-old self thinks that I'm not accomplished. Half of the things that I said that I would by that. Wow. Um, and so at times that is in itself uh, harmful because it, it prevents me from being able to enjoy what some people would call success. Because even up until this year, I did not feel successful. I did not feel successful because I was not the person my 18-year-old self, my 17-year-old self, my 10-year-old self even imagined myself to be. I thought I would have Grammys, Academy Awards, Tony Awards. I wanted to be an ego by now. You want to do what? An eagle, my mouth. I, I wanted to have a, a, a oh, Emmy, yeah, a Grammy, yeah. an Oscar, and a Tony. Yeah. I mean, it's easy yeah. to dream that when you're 17, 18. Uh, of course so I'm, I'm about to judge yeah. your 17, 18, even 10-year-old <laughs> self. So let me tell you about your 10-year-old, 17, 18-year-old Ebony. Um, <laughs> I thought I was tough. Damn. Yeah. Um, a, do you think that 
their younger self was unrealistic and and it's not that you know that's a bad i don't think that's a bad thing i think it's great to be unrealistic to a certain extent but you don't know the work that's involved until you as until you get older i don't think she was unrealistic i think she was unforgiving Ooh. of my right because so i went through a lot my childhood was not i went through a lot and my the only thing my teenage self was focused on was that is being anything. That's where I was. That doesn't mean anything. Mm. And you have to prove to them that it doesn't mean anything. And the way that you prove to them that it doesn't mean anything is you become a straight A student and you graduate summa cum laude and you get an EGOT and you tour the world and you become the most successful entertainer of all time. Mm. And that's how you prove that it doesn't mean anything. That you're not as hurt, you're not you're you're not as hurt as people think you are. You're not as damaged as everyone says you should. That none of that means anything. And you have to prove that to them. And then she was just very unforgiving of myself for feeling things, for having feelings, for being affected by the things that happened to me around me, and because of me. And um, that still gets in my way sometimes. Now, it gets in my way. How dare you be weak? How dare you cry? How dare you need a vacation? The nerve of you to require sleep. Why are you eating? You haven't finished this. You finish the task and then you'll eat something. And I just, I learned very cruel habits. I learned a lot of ways to be, be cruel to myself under the illusion that it was what I needed to do to be successful. And the better I treat myself, um, the further away from my 18 year old self I become. And sometimes that feels like the further away from being successful I become. And so it's been a journey, a very interesting journey. Your 18-year-old self was, sounds like a drill sergeant. Um, well, yeah, my father's a retired Marine. I know. <laughs> I know, but I met your dad. Your dad does not come <laughs> off as a retired military person at all. Your dad is just super, you, you see him, he's smiling, he's super lovable. because he's retired. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a different story years ago. It's a different story years ago, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So, so how do you, how how are you able to have that balance? I'm I'm assuming, well, I hope it's from the people in your life who are well, yeah, a person in particular called a therapist. Yep. Um, I sought help. I, I sought help because the things that I were that I was doing were degenerative. The way in which I saw myself was degenerative. And there was no way that I was going to survive myself. And so I did seek help. And I, I sought out a therapist. I got one. Um, and I, I developed a self-care practice. And even the people in my life, I had to allow them to fall off, fall back, or you know, fall into whatever places that they were really meant to be in because as as 
it would have it. I was surrounded by people, but very lonely and, and very sad. Um, and the more, you know, the more I became whole, the, whole, the, the more whole I became, it's interesting, is the less friends I had. And it was very telling. The better I felt, the more alone I became, but the less lonely. Mm-hmm. That's the crazy thing, is that I have way less friends now than I did then, but I feel way less alone. So it's it's one of those things that, like I said, is a lesson I guess that comes with uh, with age and gray hair, because. I, you know, nah, you couldn't have told me that I would be this person at 18 because I'd be like, that sounds like you. You know what I'm saying? Wow. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm, I love who I became. Mm-hmm. And who I became was someone I couldn't even fathom at 18. I could never imagine myself to be this person at 18. And I, I love who I am. I love what I do. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful because it could have ended in a very different way. And that's another thing. If I would have become the A and R that I do, I, I would become um, the professor that I thought I was to be. Um, I don't think that I would have found the joy that I found, mm-hmm. and I don't think I would have been able to enjoy my success because I was so focused on that that I didn't even know how to check in with myself. I didn't know what I liked to do for fun. Um, and I and, and I do now, you know what I'm saying? And I, it's just it's been an interesting journey. Like 36, it was just like, oh hey, hey Elf, you know, there you are. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, what are your plans for the remainder of the year? Uh, especially with the you know the fact that you live in Florida. <laughs> I say that as though I don't live in Florida. You live in Florida, yeah. not me. <laughs> yeah. um, what do you, well, any, any of um, any projects that you have planned for the remainder of the year? I know you had one um, that you postponed. That was at the Times Union. That as now, you remember that day when I saw I saw that I was walking downtown. Yeah. And I see, I look up and I said, I know that lady. I did. Yes, I said I know that lady. And so I took the picture and sent it to you. Um, I know that COVID, um, this particular situation um, with the pandemic, it's shut down a lot of things. What What do you have going on um, for the remainder of the year? Or, and do you have any additional goals that you want to accomplish for the remainder of the year? I am going to uh, release my hip hop album, um, which is Key Swahili for guide or <laughs> And um, I'm going to uh, complete another comic book, uh, which is called The Glorious Struggle of the Charismatic Hero. And um, I'm going to figure out what after school programming looks like.
because like right now, Duval County Public Schools, you know, they've settled into uh, the hybrid version of going back to school. And so uh, what that would look like for an after school program such as mine is going to be uh, interesting and um, it's going to need to be calculated. And so my primary focus is on my music, uh, my literature, and uh, my youth and how that, how I can still be of service even at a time such as this. So that's what the rest of my year looks like so far. But we'll see. We'll see what changes. Everything's changing. So we'll see. Slightly cut off when you were naming the the name of the album, the hip hop album. Who on Goza, which okay. is Key Swahili for guide. Who on Goza. Do you, what are your social media handles, Ebony Payne English? Um, on Instagram and Twitter, it's at Ebony Oshun, E-B-O-N-Y, O-S-H-U-N. On Facebook um, and YouTube, it's my name, Ebony Payne English, E-B-O-N-Y, P-A-Y-N-E hyphen E-N-G-L-I-S-H. All of that, of course, you can find on my website, EbonyPayneEnglish.com. And it's uh, the exact spelling that I just gave, just without the hype. Okay, excellent. So thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate you. Thank you for having me, Tanya. I appreciate all that you do for this community. Thank you. On the shoulders of giants I stand, and you are one of the giants that my career stands on. So I appreciate you. I appreciate you.